Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey guys, Everybody. welcome back to... What's that? <laughs> Why do we do this every time? Every time, man. Every time. You start, I start. Nobody starts, you know. I usually give it that little pause thinking, eh, you know, he'll start. And then you don't, and then I do, and then you do, and... We should change the name of this to false start. How many How many weeks have we done this? Mm, a couple. Why is this still so hard? We should be better by now. <laughs> um, okay, so let, let, let's start that again. All right, uh, everybody, welcome back for another week of Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Um, Why are you so subdued today, man? Am I subdued? You're like the unofficial podcast of Texas. Am I supposed to sell it a little more than that? I don't know. I mean, you've, you know, I'm excited about this, man. I think I like to understate, uh, and I am excited about what we're talking about today, by the way. I think it's going to be interesting for a lot of people. Go again, no, because I've, I've, I've yelled it in frustration many times. Uh, as I'm headed down the freeway. Uh, and that's uncharacteristic of you to <laughs> yell and head down the freeway as well, too. So <laughs> Those two things always go hand in right. hand, by the way. Uh, what are you drinking today? I'm having uh, the Billy Jenkins Bach. This oh. is from Wildacre. I like Brewing that. Company over in Fort Worth. So uh, I kind of like box, you know. Let's, let's crack it up and see. There it is. Jason, as you uh, take a swig of that, how, how is it? Delicious. It's delicious, man. Yeah. I'm a Bach fan. Yeah. No. And, and you know, the two of us, we don't coordinate anything, as is obvious by our false start every time we start this podcast. Look what I'm drinking today. It's from Wild Acre. Wow. What is that, like a, a blueberry beer? Or we're on a, no, we're on a wavelength here. That is not a blueberry. Do you? What state do you live in, Jason? I only saw like half of it. No, no, no. no. What state do you live in? Where, where do I live or yeah. where am I from? Where do yeah. you live? What are those called? Blue bonnets? That's a blue bonnet. That's not a, a blue blueberry. Bonnet, That's a blue bonnet. As it is. I, uh, well, this one's called a Texas blonde. I don't know what the blue bonnet has to do with it. But as it is, I already caught a lot of flack from somebody l- from last week uh, when we were on. Remember, I was having the beer that said it had mesquite beans in it. Yeah. Is that not true? And both of us were like, what is that? Is that like charro beans? Is it like, you know, something? Can you refry them? Can you? Uh, you know, somebody hit me up on Twitter and they were like, haven't you ever, are you kidding me? You don't know what a mesquite bean is. Haven't you ever seen the mesquite beans hanging from the tree? Like, like it's what like state are you from, man? What pod? state are you from, huh? I'm from Texas. I guess I should have known that. I've probably seen this a, a gazillion times and just, you know, never thought of it. It, it didn't have a label on it, you know? Uh, it didn't say I, this I've is never, a mesquite bean. Yeah, I've never seen the mesquite beans. Are these the ones in the, the, the darker pods that are hanging down? I, I'm sure that Google can answer all of your questions about that. I just know Google that machine. somebody on Twitter did not like that I uh, hadn't uh, figured that out by now. So there we have it. You know, thanks for you know, schooling me there on Twitter. By the way, the reason I picked this can that has the, the, the blue bonnets on the front of it, not blueberries, blue bonnets, is because, you know, I realized what we're doing today. And I thought, 
you know, that's how I like to enjoy Texas roads when I'm going down them and look out and you see the sea of blue bonnets. And, you know, for a brief moment, you stop screaming and getting upset as you head down the roadway because things are not working out right. Uh, and then you return to the screaming as you go down the, 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 the just, highway there. I just, I just spilled my beer, man. You're so full of it, dude. No, it's it, it's true. I try to have those moments. Um, you never look out the window any blue bonnets. You I need do. to. I most certainly do. I've been trying your, to enjoy your psychologist life. Probably and, suggests that you do that, but no. I, I can't imagine you doing that. I am trying to s- slow it down and you know smell the roses a little bit more these days. Uh, you know who? Let me ask this before we get down down the road too too much farther here. Do you know who Billy Jenkins is? <sighs> I on. don't, but he looks like he was a, a military guy. He looks like Andrew Jackson, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Billy Jenkins is is the uh, the eighteen hundreds face on this beer. Uh, I have no idea who Billy Jenkins is. So whoever uh, was schooling us on mesquite beans, if you could inform us on Billy Jenkins, or I can just do a Google search here and just do yeah, because neither one of us has Google. <laughs> I don't know who Billy Jenkins. is. It's a cool is. can though, and it's a good beer from it Wild is. Acre. Wild Acre, you know, they had to sponsor this. Uh, they're they're. You know, why do they need the- to? We're both doing it for them. We both picked yeah. their beer today, so why, they don't why need not? to sponsor it. Why pay? Um, so Wheeler has this great idea for the podcast about the bullet train. Is this going to happen or what? Yeah, because not it's long great, ago uh, I went down 45, and that's why I brought that up. Yeah, so so you're, you're flying down 45. There was no uh, flying involved. It was, you know, yeah, I mean... You're out in the middle of nowhere sitting in a traffic jam and you're like, why, why are there so many people on here? Like, why can't, you know, whatever happened to this train? I was supposed to get there in 90 minutes. Shouldn't that be built by now? So absolutely. What's been happening with it? I mean, a few years ago, uh, Texas Central, which is the company behind the bullet train, they even arranged for us to go to Japan and and see the bullet trains over there in in Tokyo and, and, and ride around. Uh, parts of central Japan on it. So this has been around for a while. Actually, I did the, you know, use the Google machine a little earlier and looked up when <laughs> Texas Central started. It was like 2010, 2011, something like that. It's been around for a decade. Uh, so what in the world's going on with Wheeler's question? That's a great question because every so often some news will trickle out in a press release to the newsroom and we get those and it'll be about a, you know, a different milestone, usually a regulatory milestone or or someone they've hired for the project. But is this project ever going to get off the ground? So we call over there and we ask, hey, uh, who can talk to us about this? And you know what? I was shocked about this one. I know. We, we have on the line with us now the CEO of Texas Central, Carlos Aguilar. Jason and Jason born four days apart. How'd you know that? <laughs> you did, you've done some research on us. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> um, Carlos, it's good to see you. Thanks for being on Yolitics here. Uh, anticipated construction is what we're hearing is going to start uh, in, in roughly six months at the end of this year, beginning of next year. Is that timeline still on track? Well, it all depends on funding. You know, that's the real item that we're working on now. All the major items that we need to, to support uh, the execution phase are in place. We've gone through the regulatory approvals, you know, that has gone and, you know, um, gone through its course in DC. Those things have been approved. Uh, we've had, you know, cases brought at the Texas Supreme Court regarding our status as a railroad in Texas and uh, with it, eminent domain. And that's been resolved in our, in our favor still. We, we respect all legal processes so we don't, uh, you know, uh, preempt any 
any final decision, but you know, things are going very well. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let me ask you a little more about that, that funding, that financing, which is the, the, the key to all this, since uh, Texas Central is going to be privately funded. For a year now, I've, I've been seeing and reading that, that uh, Texas Central has letters of intent from banks in, in uh, Europe and in Japan. Where does that stand now? And, and I guess the bigger question is, what percentage of funding is, is already complete? Well, all of that is, uh, is true. All those letters of intent are in place. Also, we're looking at what happens with the infrastructure package, right? That's obviously paramount to whatever it is that we do here. We do, um, you know, have a base case that includes funding from the U.S. government. Hmm. And that is because of the length of, um, of debt service that these funds provide. And uh, that is a yardstick by which the other funds that would come into the project uh, would be following. So that's how it works in international finance. And that's why, uh, you know, you have to sort of close everything together at the same time so that uh, everything works together. So, Carlos, did something change somewhere along the route? Because since this was announced many years ago, it was you know, touted as this private option. It was going to use private money. It didn't need any money from the state. It didn't need any money from the federal government. No, did something change? No. I think there's a, there's a misunderstanding as to what private means. Private means that it's been developed uh, privately. We have not spent any uh, federal or state funds developing this project at all. I mean, we've got over $700 million of funding, and none of that has been from either the state of Texas or the federal government. And uh, that has allowed us to put a package together that is um, ready for execution, all fully permitted end to end. And also with, um, you know, the contractors and all the players that are necessary, scope definition, all these aspects that are key to ensure that the project can be executed as a whole. So that Carlos, is private. Uh, in terms of funding, we access whatever source of funding is, is available, right? Uh, you can imagine that uh, COVID has had an impact on infrastructure markets around the world. Uh, that is uh, a moving target all the time. You know, you uh, access the funds that are most appropriate for the project. That's the way it's always been and will always be. For example, in the power sector, there's a lot of funding that comes from governments, right? But still, the enterprises are private. They're run privately. They have their PPAs based on that. They have commercial terms under which they execute uh, the finances of the project. So the development was done privately, it sounds like I'm hearing. Absolutely, but yes. it, it sounds like that, that uh, Texas Central might be considering whether to tap into any federal grants from this infrastructure package. Am I understanding you right? No, our target has always been loans, not, not necessarily grants. It is focused, as I said, on the long, long-term uh, debt that is available through, for example, the RIF program out of the USDOT. And uh, that's what you need to build large infrastructure. I mean, you need long-term. You need low interest rates. And this is what uh, those funds provide. And, and to Both make sure private I- and public pro- parties. I mean, this, these are funds that have been there for a very long time and have been used by both private and public entities. Yeah, it's important to point out too, a loan is, is not, uh, you know, it's something will be paid back. It's not, you know, taxpayer funded sure. uh, in, in that sense. But exactly. uh, 
So, sorry to keep interrupting you here on our, our, uh, our Zoom line today, but I want to make sure I understand too, what part of, of the financing is already complete? You already have half of it done and you're trying to get the other half before you turn dirt or what? You never close uh, these things partially. You close them at the same time. That's why it's called financial close. Every party agrees to a portion of funding, but of course, at the end, all have to commit to that funding at the same time. So that's how it is, and that's how it works, and you know that's how the industry has always operated. Well, let me ask you like this: How many more banks do you need to to uh, to tie off the funding? I think uh, whatever happens with the infrastructure is key to us. I believe that would be the final element that would bring us together. So we should know something pretty definitive then, maybe within a couple of months here. I would say so. Yeah. Uh, so do you think it is possible that you could actually turn dirt by the end of this year still? Is that is that too ambitious to expect that? If somebody is going up and down 45 right now screaming about the traffic, is it unrealistic for them to expect that maybe dirt starts to get turned on this? It is ambitious. Um, it all depends on how you structure it. If you have, for example... Uh, permanent financing that's already in place or at least circled for this project by all these entities, and therefore you have a certainty that there will be a financial close. You could bridge fund uh, part of uh, the needs that we would have, start engineering, start some of the um, you know, uh, land uh, preparation activities that we would have to do. But all depends on, again, how all the package comes together. On many projects before, I've worked on uh, bridge funding to start uh, turning dirt, as you say. Mm-hmm. How much roughly is Texas Central hoping to get loan-wise from the infrastructure package to tie this thing off? Um, we have uh, explained to Congress and to other stakeholders what it is that we would source out of the United States. We expect U.S. spend to be aligned with that. Uh, how much it is or end up, ends up being, I, I cannot uh, say precisely. Our current estimate is around $12 billion, uh, but it could be more. Uh, it is in that range. And, and so r- roughly, uh, if Texas Central could, could get a, a $12 billion loan roughly, then that would be enough to, to get the dirt turning and, and get things moving uh, because th- the rest of the money sounds like it's locked up. With the that is the current base case. But of course, I mean, this is just... Um, you know, current estimates based on the supply chain, based on everything that we do, all the salaries that we would be uh, spent in in the term of construction of, of the works and so on. You, you don't have Wheeler's salary to worry about. That's the good news, Carlos, because that, that would probably be another billion dollars. No, that'd be a big distortion, unfortunately. <laughs> we wish. We wish. We uh, I, I was just going to ask you, you, know, you know, since you know this has been going for a while and, and you kind of knocked on wood there in the beginning when you alluded to the fact that you know there could still be legal things uh, to have to go through, uh, because it looks like at this point uh, the Supreme Court in Texas has decided – uh, that you all are a railroad because they didn't take up uh, the, the the appeal case there. Um, but then, you know, some people are appealing to the Supreme Court still saying, hey, take a look at this. That's pretty critical there that you be considered as a railroad, though, because that's how, as you say, you get eminent domain, which helps you to uh, be able to lock up all the land that you need to go all the way from North Texas down to Houston, uh, especially if you have a landowner who you know doesn't want to do that. 
how how crucial is that going to be for you all then that you remain a, a railroad? You know, I think when that headline came out, people were like, well, okay, it's a railroad. What does that mean? This is what it means. That is what it means. Yes. And as I said, that's why I don't preempt uh, legal uh, decisions, right? These are processes. We respect all these processes to the extent that they take uh, hearings or rehearings or whatever it is that uh, is uh, proposed. We believe uh, on the merits. We we obviously have been recognized as uh, winning the argument. I mean, those actions are pretty clear. But um, again, we won't preempt decisions. Mm-hmm. The decisions are not ours. At, at this They're point, how much of that land do you have locked up uh, along the route? And how much do about, you still need? About 40%. About 40% we've been able to negotiate either purchases on or options for purchase. So still, still 60% to go. Yeah. And that's usual. I mean, all of this, I mean, if you think about it, there's a development phase and we've advanced within that development phase to be able to buy, buy land. That's unusual. Usually it's after financial close that you go and buy everything. But uh, we've uh, maintained negotiations with landowners for over four years. And as a result of that, we've been proceeding, you know, systematically to purchase property uh, from folks that want to deal with us. And that's a fact. I mean, we offer good terms. We respect landowners as, you know, as as best we can. We accommodate their needs the best uh, way possible. Uh, I give you an example. Instead of having... uh, road over rail passes. We've tried to eliminate those as much as possible. And uh, in the last uh, round of environmental permitting, we reduced those from 46 to 11. And that's uh, to reduce the amount of land that we need and, of course, disrupt uh, the communities as as least as possible. So that that is the purpose of uh, what we do and how we do it. We know these are neighbors that are going to be there with us forever. It's not like you can cut corners and uh, and decide to just uh, arbitrarily go through their land. No, it isn't. And that's why it's a very careful process, one-on-one, landowner by landowner, to ensure that we get uh, the right answer. The fact that we would be declared a railroad, as you say, in, in Texas, does bring some rights. That does not change our approach, though. I mean, our approach is to continue negotiations one-on-one with each family, with each landowner, uh, to ensure that we have a good neighbor. Mm. And that is uh, the way you do these projects. You don't do them arbitrarily. That's just never going to work ever uh, in the world. Not here, not anywhere else. It's very personal, uh, I guess, for a lot of people that that you come into contact with, especially when you're in Texas and it always gets dicey when it's time to, to take the land. Of course. Of course. I mean, that, that is what it is. Uh, you have to also think of what it is that we are accessing in terms of land. I mean, a lot of distortions have been spouted out by many folks with respect to what it is that we actually need. On average, you're looking at 150 feet. <laughs> this is what we're talking about. 400 feet if it's an embankment on average. So it isn't like we're taking miles and miles and miles along the alignment. That is just not true. And, um, and that's why, again, you have to go and plan for each road crossing to ensure, you know, you're coordinating with TxDOT and everybody else to ensure that this is done right. All right, Carlos, before we get too much farther down the track here too, 
Did you like that wheeler no, down the track? No, I did not. That, that was unintentional, this whole podcast. <laughs> I just ha- happened to say it. But let's pause for a quick word from our sponsor. And we're back with Carlos Aguilar, the president and CEO of Texas Central. You, you mentioned uh, you, you mentioned COVID. Obviously, it put so much of the world on pause. No. How much did COVID set things back for Texas Central? Well, it's set us back somewhat in terms of being able to, to attract uh, investment from private parties. Um, early on, we were very close on closing uh, some funding with private parties and of course their priorities changed as soon as um, COVID hit. But in terms of advancing the project, getting the permits uh, locked down and the legal process resolved, I think it's actually been um, pretty much on time. Do you think it's going to add to the price tag though? Because my God, it's like everything's more expensive in my life. I'm sure it is uh, on, a, on a very large scale for you all. Do you, I, I know that this is a long-term project, but do you, do you sense that this is going to increase the expense? One of the aspects that uh, we're looking at is um, interest costs. Uh, if that interest rate you now continues to go up, of course, it has financial costs on the project. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I don't think so. We've been uh, looking at supply chain, looking at what uh, the um, various materials it is that we would source out of the U.S. mostly, because this is where most of the inflationary pressures are. But we don't think um, that will have major impact apart from financial costs. Since Whiteley brought up my fat paycheck, let's say that I could give you all the money you needed right now, Carlos. How much do you think that this thing would cost? If, if I could say, I, I'm going to cover the whole thing for you, what is the, the end price tag? So the hard cost of this is about $24 billion. That is uh, the cost of building this, the cost of setting it up uh, and doing the startup, uh, installing all the equipment, uh, and ensuring that you can get to commercial operations. Mm, that's gone up from when it was first announced quite a bit, hey? Well, it, it, it depends on how you look at it and depends on what it is that you're uh, comparing it to. As I said, you know, for example, this is costly because we're making all these uh, adjustments to ensure that uh, the alignment is acceptable to uh, you know, landowners, stakeholders, everybody else. That's not cheap. You know, we could have a train on on the ground all the way from here to Houston. It would cost a lot less. Uh, the difference in uh, building a viaduct over an embankment is five times the cost. So it isn't like uh, this is automatic. Uh, yes, you have a base alignment that you can go on embankment from here all the way to Houston. It would be a lot less expensive. Mm. But um, again, that's part of the political process. That's part of the negotiations and also your um, alignment with uh, the interests of stakeholders. Carlos, let me ask you, sorry to interrupt you there. Let me ask you about the the contractors on this because uh, Texas Central selected uh, Renfe to actually operate the trains once things get up and going. Uh, yep. Renfe runs runs the trains in Spain. I've ridden on the trains in Spain. I've ridden on the trains in Japan as well. The, the bullet trains, the Shinkansen there. I've always just been confused why, if this is kind of modeled after the Shinkansen bullet train system in Japan, why wouldn't Texas Central want uh, the Central Japan Railway 
to come over and operate the train that it knows how to run. Yeah, well, Central Japan Railway is a, is a life cycle partner to us, and they'll be with us all the way through. Uh, their policy is not to operate trains outside of Japan. So that is an, an important aspect of it. On the other hand, uh, in terms of uh, technology, support, uh, life cycle management, all these things, they're going to be with us all the time and throughout the life of the project. In terms of, in terms of uh, practices and westernizing the operation, uh, it was uh, important to bring other expertise. And actually, that has been incredibly helpful. The collaboration of Italian, Spanish, American, Japanese uh, experts looking at different aspects of this, and even UK folks, has really helped us uh, come up with the best design for Texas. Not for Japan, not for Europe, but for Texas. And that, uh, that is really one of the reasons why we've had a consortium that puts together all that expertise. Certainly makes sense there. At what point in the uh, in the process will the actual construction of the rail cars begin uh, in Japan for Texas? Lead time is about eighteen months, I believe, and therefore you have to start. Uh, well, there's a lot of processes here. Just to give you a, a bit of detail of the scope and how it's put together, so we would start with the northern alignment of, of the rail here in, uh, in Texas and commission part of that, uh, about 50 miles or so of, uh, of the railroad uh, so that we can do testing. And we'd do, be doing that testing once the first uh, prototype uh, trains would be ready for testing. That's the way it would be uh, burned in. That's how you get all the regulatory approvals. And that's within the term of construction of the rest of the railroad. So it is all fits into an 80 and a half month schedule from start of design to com commercial operation. So, so the first 50 miles of track would be out of Dallas running south 50 miles or so to test things out? Yep, that's the idea. And you said it would take how long total? 80 months and a half. 80 and a half months. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Y'all couldn't work that half, that half into everything and just do 80 months total? It depends on whether the other Jason's on board or not. That's funny. Yeah. I, I, that half a month is what it comes down to. I, I thought I heard you right there and I had to get clarification. 80 and a half months. Um, I want to ask you, uh, you know, this is touted as a, a much faster way to get back and forth from Dallas to Houston. Also a stop down there in the in the college station area. Right. Um, you know, you say that, you know, it can actually be done faster than car, obviously, and even by airplane because, you know, you don't have the wait time at the airport and so on and so forth. Carlos, you haven't ridden with Wheeler in the car down the freeway. <laughs> and let me tell you, the the, uh, the trains you guys will run will, you know, it'll be close. It'll I'm going to put them to the test. Time. Well, yes. you know, and, and but, you know, 45, of course, steps in the way of that. And we all know what 45 <laughs> is like nowadays. Uh, right. So, so, so that's a huge benefit. The question has always been, though, too: Can you do it at a price point that people will go for? You know, will they yeah. say, "Yeah, I'll leave the car behind. I won't go through all those headaches, or I'm not going to deal with the airport, even if I can get a cheap fare down to Houston from Dallas." Will yeah. you still be able to do that now that the price tag you're looking at is 24 billion? Yeah, we believe so, and uh, the reasons are, are varied. I mean, you, you mentioned the problems, right? The, the issues of congestion, 
growth um, of this economy and you know the bipolar sort of economy between Dallas and um, and Houston. I mean, these are the only two city metros that have grown over a million uh, people in the last 10 years in the whole U.S. And growth continues to be here in Texas. And 50% of that growth, at least, is within this corridor. So the situation is not, not going to improve, right, in terms of congestion and the other alternatives for travel. Um, number two, safety is a big issue. You know, uh, I-45, you know, uh, Popular Mechanics has an article on this from, I believe, August of last year. And uh, they show it is the most dangerous highway in the country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is that a, a factor that should be weighed into the, the assessment of travel? We, we believe so, right? Uh, the next point is um, if you look at business travel, what is it that people look into? Uh, and at when they're considering uh, to either drive down or fly down and up from uh, Houston to Dallas and Dallas to Houston. Number one, it is uh, what is the overall cost of travel? Is it only the gas or is it you're going to stay there? It's going to take four hours or five hours to get there. Um, are you going to spend in hotels? Because again, it'll be inefficient to get back the same day. All these factors play into the price then. If you understand what high-speed rail brings, which is really what we have to explain to the American public, both in Texas and elsewhere, once high-speed rail is something that we can live with, it's exactly that reliability that you were talking about and how fast it is. You know, you can literally get out in the morning, predictably be down on schedule, uh, to Houston and back by lunchtime. That is what you cannot do uh, reliably with either air travel because of weather. Usually in Texas, that's a big issue or congestion at airports or whatever it is. And also the roads. You've never been able to be able to do that with road travel. So you have to compare from a business perspective, for example, what is it that a company or an individual would pay for that? And you, when you start comparing all of these aspects, you see that the fare is competitive. So significant burden on uh, business travelers so that you can definitely have availability of seats because we have many seats, many more than air, uh, to be able to do dynamic pricing and therefore allow folks that students and others to travel at cheap prices. It is part of the on-peak, uh, you know, travel time and pricing and the low-peak uh, travel price um, and timing. So all of these aspects are the ones that play into this. This is why high-speed rail is competitive around the world. It is not necessarily the, that cheap. You know, you, you know that traveling in Europe or traveling in Japan is not that cheap. But on the other hand, it's competitive. And it's competitive because... Again, it's predictable, it's safe, and uh, that's what we would bring here. Yeah, and, and the, the, the class of service, I mean, uh, just having ridden on, on these, I'm sure many of our listeners have, have as well too, but you know, you have to worry about leg room, stashing something underneath. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a great way to travel. 
But in Japan, and I think, and I can't remember it in, in Spain and other places, but I know in Japan, I've just walked right up to the platform and purchased tickets on the bullet train and, uh, and you know, taken off on a journey dozen times or so. And I, I want to recollect that, you know, depending on how far I was going, that it was 100 US, 150 US, depending on how far I was going, which is, you know, it, it's, it's cheaper than air. And I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, the, the other stuff that goes along with that, passing security and, and left and right. But what should I expect to pay, roughly, if I want to get on a train in Dallas and go down to Houston one day? As I said, it depends on dynamic pricing. Uh, we're at about 75% of uh, what air travel costs. That is more or less where a price point is. And again, it's because of the availability of seats. You know, we have more seats available than uh, the airplane capacity between the two cities. And that allows us to have more dynamic pricing. And what price point is that? Is that air travel that you're working off of? Like well, th- 300 bucks? Now, that- yeah, I mean, it's three to 500, depending on when yeah. you travel, right? So it's along those lines. So make it 75% of that. And that's mostly, again, if you... Same approach for dynamic pricing that you have there, right? Uh, if you book the same day and you want uh, a sort of business seat or you know business select or whatever it is it Southwest, it'll be five hundred bucks, right? Uh, if it is uh, booked with time and uh, low peak and all those things, you can make it for you know get it for cheap, hmm. and that's that's what we would have here. It's exactly the same kind of system. Carlos, I want to I want to ask you because when you start off something new, there's that period when you know you worry about its survivability and and you're trying to make it viable. You're trying to keep it going. Are we are we past the point of that with this project, or is there something uh, that's still you know in front of you here that could end up killing this whole thing, even after all the work that has gone into it? Well. I, I think that in terms of um, the understanding of what the, this service brings, uh, we've gone, I think, uh, a long way in people understanding what it is. But uh, until you live it, I don't think people really understand the benefits. Actually, one of our concerns is uh, over, over capacity. You know, that once people really understand what this brings that actually the the plan that we have for adoption is actually going to be less than the demand. And uh, if that's the case, uh, we would have to adjust some of the investments that we have to ensure that we can cater for that demand. So it's a combination of factors. As you say, it's new and therefore difficult to to digest, I guess, if you've never experienced it. But on the other hand, uh, high demand could be an issue. So that means more power that we have to use. Therefore, you know, we have obviously uh, already discussions with distribu- distribution companies along the alignment to, to supply power to the project. Um, even though it's not a lot of power that we need, we need about 80 megawatts or so uh, at full capacity. If you grow that demand, we need more substations, we need more uh, capacity at uh, at the stations themselves and so on. So, yeah, the, there are issues that, that come with um, either uh, quick success or with uh, adoption rates based on a new a new system. Mm. That's normal to any offering that, that you have. My experience is 
and different types of infrastructure from, you know, improving service uh, for the London Underground or, you know, new airports uh, being opened that people, once they understand the benefits, will use them. You know, th there is a fear factor that always comes with anything new. Uh, once people understand how safe this really is and how fast it is, uh, I think they'll adopt it. And, you know, this the statistics in Japan are incredible, right? It's 56 years of service, zero accidents and zero fatalities, with untimed performance of within 32 seconds huh. per train per year. Okay, not per day, per year. So this is a deviation from timetable that you have. And, and that is the precise service that it provides and why people use it. It's it's unbelievable the the train system that they have been able to sustain over there and and the product they deliver. Uh, but last question for you: we, we know you're tight on time. We'll let you run, but we can't predict politics and what happens with the infrastructure bill in D.C. Yep. But if you had to put a percentage on it, what, what are the odds that, uh, that that you guys will be turning dirt in the next six months or so? It again, it depends on on what it is that uh, we can structure as temporary funding or bridge funding once we have more clarity on the infrastructure bill and the final package of funding. Uh, is that taking longer than I expected? Yeah, well, you see the discussions. Uh, they're now moving on to September to approve the bill. So, uh, well, I can't predict that. So it's difficult to, to have uh, you know, a certainty of when that's going to be first approved, then instrumented. You know, where is it that they're going to be channeling these funds through? You know, we, we have to also go through that. So I, I, I think it's very optimistic to, sit, to think that we would be turning dirt in, in uh, six months. Uh, but again, we are having interest from private funds and things, uh, you know, providers of funding of that type that could be interested in starting earlier. So again, it's possible. Uh, I cannot give you more than a 50% chance. And Carlos, just so I want to call back to Allen Media, and the bridge funding would be from a, a private entity with the guarantee that you would eventually get the money from the feds. Is that what the bridge yeah, funding would be? That, that's how these um, entities uh, participate in. Uh, okay. this, kind of this phase, you know, it's sort of once you complete your development phase and your pre-execution, but you have to start de-risking the project. Obviously, investors that come in at that stage look at pretty interesting returns. So, yeah. I have a, a last, last question for you. You've done these yep. enormous projects. You've referred to a couple of them here. Uh, yep. Over over 30 years now, you've been doing this, handling you know billions and billions of dollars for these different ones. How does this one rate? Has this one been harder than the others? Is it average? Is it easier? How, how does this rate? It seems hard from the outside. They're all different. Um, and they all have... Uh, I mean, you're really... It's very difficult to compare to honest, to be honest, you know, uh, from an environmental perspective, for example, uh, the management of species that I've had to do on other projects, uh, give you an example, Mojave Desert in California, dealing with desert tortoises, um, very complicated. <laughs> so, so uh, it, it, it really is uh, very um, beneficial to neutral. And in many aspects of, of, of the project, environmentally, it does not have an impact sort of, the, you know, compared to the one I just mentioned. 
Um, and therefore, it's not that it's easier, but it's less impactful. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it makes it, in terms of regulatory approvals, more uh, streamlined, let's put it that way. Uh, but it, it really varies. I mean, here, the relationship, obviously, with uh, many, many landowners is, is something that is very complicated, very complex. And again, that's something that you cannot rush. You have to make it uh, a dialogue that takes years. And that's what we've tried to do. And this is why we've started to buy land, even though we have not uh, you know, reached the financial flows. But it, it is really very difficult to compare. Mm. It's it just the way it is. You know, sometimes you work in, in the boondocks <laughs> out in, in Australia, for example, which is something I had to do, you know, before coming here. Uh, that is very hard. You know, the execution there is fly in, fly out. Everybody that comes into the project is from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, productivity is horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's just many other aspects that come into play. So th- they all have their tricks. Mm. Carlos, this is fascinating. I, I can't wait to uh, ride it. I, I can't wait to see who wins the, the race down 45, whether uh, you can outrun a bullet train. That, there that's won't what be I'm a race. If there's a train available, I'm going to be on the train with you. <laughs> and, and, and something I, I just wanted to say with respect to that, you know, this line will actually be the fastest line, high-speed rail line in the world. Hmm. And it is because, okay, our average, uh, our top speed will be 205 miles an hour, right? We'll start at 189. And then, based on regulatory approval, go to 205 miles an hour. Can't they do and faster we, in China now? Uh, yeah, but they have more stops. Uh, we have one. True. And therefore, our average speed will be about 178. Hmm. And that is the fastest rail system in the world. Will this still be the first high-speed rail line in the United States? I am pretty certain it will be. And the reason why is uh, this is the only project that actually has regulatory approvals and to it. Good point. You guys have worked hard and I, I, uh, I can't wait to see it come to fruition. So uh, thanks for taking our call. And I know we're going to call you back, man. I hope you take our call again. Of course. It's a real pleasure, Jason and Jason. Wow. Number one, we get carlos aguilar on the line number two i know nobody ever offers up the ceo first of all and 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 that's always who you want you want the person who knows all of it i want to know i want to talk to the person who knows where everybody is buried and 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 the the crazier thing is usually when you do get the ceo they don't want to tell you anything or they say oh you know we're looking into that or they speak in generalities i was surprised there by a lot of the things that he told us. Surprise. He spilled the beans to us, man. I mean, the whole thing's kind of hinging on, it sounds like, the infrastructure bill that's going to go before Congress this month. Um, how much is it going to cost for a ticket? They've never really said. This is the first time I've heard him saying it'll be about mm-hmm. 75% of what airfare costs on that same route. When is it mm-hmm. going to start? Is it going to be the next six months? He said, that's ah, kind of ambitious, but only if this infrastructure bill passes. Even then, I think it's optimistic, he said. But the biggest thing that I can't believe that he, that he told us on this podcast, he knew that we were born four days apart. Carlos is a listener of Yolitics. That's the He does headline. his homework. Huh? He, he does his <laughs> homework. And, you know, uh, that was impressive. And uh, I, I bet you that he, it, you know, if we talk to him again someday, he's going to know that we both chose the same beer on the same day here as well for this. He probably will. Um, 
Uh, really impressive homework being done there. I, I'm curious to see if, if all of this falls into place. I think a lot of people are curious. Uh, I know a lot of the landowners uh, going down, you know, between the two big cities. Uh, you know, there's, there's still quite a few people who might not be happy uh, about this. I know that there's a lot of commuters who might be super happy about this. Um, and, you know, I, I was looking at their numbers and uh, the, the railway says that nearly 100,000 Texans, uh, which are called super commuters, travel back and forth between Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth more than once a week. If I had to travel that more than once a week, actually commute, drive back and forth, I would be a madman. Uh, so, you know, maybe those people are going to be happy. They think they're going to have as many as six million people riding this train uh, annually by 2029, 13 million by 2050. They've got some big projections here. They're, they're you know, they're banking on this being a huge success if they could just get that first little bit of track built. Yeah. That's another thing that he I, I hadn't heard the part about the, you know, the 50 miles and how they want to do, do a little test track south of Dallas and then kind of take it from there. I think that once people get a taste of this, providing this gets off the ground, once people get a yes. taste of, of how how good this technology is, the, the yes. cabins are huge. You don't worry about tiny leg room and, and, and shoving things up, you know, above your uh, above your head. Um, yes, it's, it's massive. It's it's bright. It's fast. Uh, it, it's a good way to travel. Just having you know having ridden on these in, in Japan multiple times over yes. the years. Um, but as far as that drive, man, a hundred thousand people oh. drive that a couple times a week. I, with, I, I don't know with, how with they do that. With all respect to our our friends in Central Texas, I, that is a challenging drive just because there's nothing there. You know, yeah. You you, you, you leave Dallas, and the next thing you see a few hours later is a you know statue of sam houston there um, and a whole lot of traffic in between yeah. and you're right you know if you've traveled like this in other countries uh you can really get used to this i know that texans love their cars they love their wide open spaces they love their freedom to be able to drive the roads let me tell you what i give all that up in a second if you put me on a fast train and i can kick back take a little bit of a nap kick my shoes off i always do that i am that guy um, and, and, and chill out on a train and let somebody else off, do you. You don't take your socks. Or <laughs> no. you're not one of those guys, are you? I'll, I'll keep the socks on, uh, just for everybody else. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's amazing how that changes the complexion of a trip. And then you really can, I mean, it might be a little bit of a blur at those speeds, but you really can look out the window and maybe see some blue bonnets going by, you know, which I like to do that. Please, man. <laughs> you don't look out anybody's window for a blue bonnet at all. But here's a question for you. Here's a question for our listeners. W would you ride the bullet train? And we can actually hear from you now because we have a Yolitics hotline set up. So we do call us and leave us a voicemail. Let us know. We might actually use it in the podcast here. Here's our phone number. Pause us if you need to so you can grab a pen and a paper. But here's our phone number. It's 214-977-6020. 214-977-6020. Will you ride the train? Will you be like Wheeler and, and just, you know, stay in your car and burn up and down the freeway? Uh, you know, angrily not looking out at the blue bonnets and the gorgeous scenery along I-45 or I-35. I have calmed down a lot. You're biting your but lip, let us know. You're biting your lip. I had, a, I had a long way to go, though, so I've calmed down a lot. Uh, let us know, though, what you think of the, the idea of a bullet train between Houston and uh, Dallas-Fort Worth that would be, as he said, the fastest in the world when you account for the fact that they're not making a bunch of stops in between. 
uh, could be a totally different way of getting around Texas. Uh, anyway, let us know what's on your mind, and uh, we will see you again when we do this again next week and we get off to another false start and both start the podcast at the same time where you can't understand anything. Thank you.